Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I am a writer and an entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've wondered what makes life meaningful and what makes work worth doing. In my day job, I help schools and universities, entrepreneurs and leaders learn how to market and grow their reach. You can learn more about my company, Your People, at yourppl.com. I also am a writing coach, and I teach my signature Find Your Voice Writers Workshop, through writingworkshops.com and at makemeaning.org. I help people, organizations, and movements find their voice and gain the confidence to use it. Because everything we do means something. Why waste your moments? You are needed. You can make the world better. And by caring about the people you encounter and the tasks you take on, you get closer every day to finding your unique meaning and living life with purpose. This podcast focuses on all the many ways people make meaning in the mundane. You'll hear stories of courageous people daring to imagine a life they love. If you like what you hear, give us a review on any of the podcast platforms you find this show. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Dorit Sassone is an author, speaker, and SEO specialist who grew up in the United States, moved to Israel, and served in the Israel Defense Forces before ultimately deciding to move her family back to America after living in Israel for 18 years. She lives now in Pittsburgh and is the author of two memoirs, Accidental Soldier and Sand and Steel. Dorit speaks and writes about longing, longing for place, longing for people, longing for a sense of home. She talks of straddling cultures, languages, and histories. Dorit defines memoir as, quote, the fine art between straddling your truth and allowing yourself to be seen. I'm really excited to welcome Dorit Sasson to the Make Meaning podcast today as we talk about her journey through life, around the world, and ultimately sharing her stories in the form of memoir. Dorit Sasson, welcome to the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Lynn. It's great to be on the show. Um, so let's begin with when you made Aliyah, when you moved to Israel and became a citizen. Um, I'd like to hear about that journey, You know how you decided to move to Israel, um, what the experience was like for you. And, and then, of course, I'd love to ask if you feel more Israeli or more American, or, or is there like a hybrid identity there? So, so take me through that whole journey. Yeah. So it started when I dropped out of college and my mother, who is at the time, really nervous and did not like Israel at all. She was married to an Israeli, but she did not like the idea of me serving in the IDF. Hmm. The journey really began to escape my mother. I did not want, I was not a Zionist. I did not like the idea of going and serving in the IDF. I did. I, I actually just loved working on a kibbutz, which is what I enjoyed doing the summer before. Hmm. And I loved kibbutz life and I loved the freedom of it. And I just wanted to be a hippie, stay on a commune, work my way through the land, enjoy the beauty of nature where those beautiful apple orchards were at the time in the Upper Galilee and mm -hmm. no intention of serving in the idea. Okay. And the, the real, it was a combative type of relationship that we had. And one of the biggest Stumbling, the biggest challenges was how to be my own person. In Israel, I was able to feel that. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so in Israel, it's the lifestyle there is very different and very much of a spontaneous, in-the-moment type lifestyle. It was just a matter of 
being out of a scheduled routine. And Israelis really live for relationships. They live for connections. Mm -hmm. And being in the United States, you're very separate. You have a very distant you know, connection with the person, your neighbor, family. And Israel is geographically, it's very small. It's the size of Massachusetts, maybe Delaware. Relationships are tight. People are connected. I needed that as a youngster. I felt ignored. Mm-hmm. I, I was looking for a deeper way to connect with people. And Israelis, they become very much alive in the moment. And that spoke to me deeply. It's a beautiful concept. Um, so, you know, you went there and um, just sort of tell me about like how that progressed and what did you have to do to become a citizen? Like, what was that time like? Yeah, so I was a citizen from day one because my father was Israeli. Uh-huh. The whole idea of going and joining the RDF had its own paperwork route. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really wanted to join the kibbutz section of the army called Nalchal. Mm-hmm. And at the time, kibbutz was really a commune. It had a, a communal lifestyle. People were sharing and belonging and connecting and that also very much deeply spoke to me. I loved the idea of working biyachad together for the for the better of of the commune of the of the relationship of the unit. And I loved that idea. It was just such a revolutionary thing for my eighteen year old brain. And you know, the serving in the IDF and then doing military work was kind of like softening the the military. I didn't want to do like you know go into Lebanon or do some hardcore thing. And and women at the time weren't even allowed to do things like that. So it was really, I was entering a a very kind of unsure time. And I knew that was a good way to serve because it was also a home. Mm -hmm. Having kibbutz as a home, I would be able to build those communal relationships that I started as a volunteer. Mm -hmm. And it really helped me reach my goals. I really loved the Israeli lifestyle. I loved being seen, mm-hmm. being in the moment. I loved the connections. I didn't like the disparate nature of Americans. I I kind of was born for that lifestyle. I loved the, the connectedness of the people and how, you know, they see you and they're like, one minute they're jocular and super funny and super hilarious and super out of their element, just like jocular and Saying things in Hebrew that for Israelis is like a real, I'm so happy to see you. And Hebrew is that kind of language that when you speak it, your whole body comes alive. (laughs) Vivaciousness and something very hard to explain and to articulate. It's something that you have to experience and feel. That's why so many Americans, when they go back, they want to go back to Israel because it had made an an impression on them. This, This feeling of coming out being part of something. And that would be like the impression that it made that serving in the IDF when you have these tight relationships that that make you come alive, even under pressure, it's still possible to feel like you're a family. Yeah, I've always thought that Israelis, they speak so poetically. I mean, it doesn't matter their education level, like even the politicians, the words they use end up sounding like 
literary or poetic. And I, I think it's the language. I mean, you know, po- politicians around the world are crazy, but like the language is just different in Israel, you know, and as a writer, I really appreciate that and admire it because I think we're lacking that here <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I love the idea of having po- politics speak poetry. Right. Yeah. So I guess I would ask, like, do you feel more Israeli or more American or like how do those identities interweave? It's such a great question that I feel all the time. And and sadly, if I'm in Israel, I'm happy to forget my American roots. And I think that really puts it all into perspective. I mean, I speak Hebrew with my husband. We prepare our delicious foods, our Shabbat meals. We, you know, make those calls to Israel. He's on, you know, Israeli channels, watching the news, getting his news addiction, you know, and everything. But we don't live there. Mm -hmm. And virtue of the fact that we don't live there, our identities have to resynchronize themselves. So to answer your question, what takes precedence, it's really, you know, the lifestyle here. It's like Israeli first in Israel because that's my homeland. Mm -hmm. It's such a cultural question because it plays a huge part in identity. And when you give something up as big as culture, there's no replacement for it. You can't place culture. And in America, we have so many of those cultures that it it just would be so strange to just think of it as one monocultural unit, you know? I mean, yeah, we're so much bigger too. And so, you know, when you have a smaller, you know, population, a smaller um, geography, it's easier to be homogenous. I mean, and there's not homogeneity in Israel, all kinds of different ways of, of living, but, you know, by and large it is. And it's interesting because I, I heard something recently on a podcast about how, you know, Israel is a nation, it's a religion, it's a, a people. And it's like these three different entities, which it's really hard to reconcile those three notions. You know, um, I, I wonder what you think about that. You know, like there's, so the religion, um, I mean, yes, that develops the culture, the traditions, but there are many different ways to live out the religion. And then to be a people, is it is it because of the religion? But no, because there are so many ways to interpret it. So like, what are your thoughts about those, you know, three different simultaneous identities of Israel? Yeah. It, it's very true. And there's so many types of cultures. There are Cherkessim, there's Druze, Arab, Muslim, there's Christian. They're all different kinds. Yeah. And then within Judaism too. I mean, we have Ashkenazi and Sephardi, we have Mizrahi, we have, you know, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, all kinds of interpretations with beyond those. I mean, there's so much that's, that's different. So it's interesting because when I immigrated, I thought of Israel as the Jewish state, right? Mm -hmm. As I'm coming in, serving in the IDF and without the IDF, there is no Israel. And in the IDF, you can have Cherkessim and Druze, and that's the beauty of the IDF, right? Yeah. Of Christians, I met all of them. I served yeah. all of them. Mm-hmm. So for me, statehood is what defines the the nation and the identity. Right? You're Jewish first. In my case, Jew. Mm-hmm. I'm Israeli first. I'm Jewish second. Mm. I never once stepped into a synagogue when I was in Israel because I knew that the culture was massive, and that would and I was just trying to survive. To me, religion wasn't the ticket to survival. Do that, you need language. Yeah. Do that, you need chutzpah. Uh-huh. You can only do that if you have the cultural mindset. Religion, in from my experience, I can only speak from my experience because I, this is a lived experience. Religion mm-hmm. 
is what you identify with. And I identify it as my ticket to cultural survival as an Israeli. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I never really stepped into a synagogue because I was like, what's the point? Yeah. I don't yeah. need to. I need Hebrew. I need chutzpah. I need to get things done. I need to stand on my two ground. I'm not going to take any slack. And I'm going to make it clear that this is, you know, I'm, I'm a woman, but I have a gun and I can shoot it if I need to, right? <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm, and that's really language, culture, and identity are intertwined for me. It's a real um, touchy question because it, you know, it depends on who you are and where you come from. Now, I was on a mission. I was like, if I'm here, I have to make it work. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's talk a little bit about your time in the IDF because you said that you were hesitant about serving, um, but then you did. And so did you have a shift in your perspective? Like what was the experience like to actually be in the IDF? It was, all, my success in the IDF really depended on my willingness to get through hard times, you know, being understood, being able to socialize and work together as a unit. And if you look at the cohort that we served in, we were all foreign recruits coming from many different countries. We all had our own shenanigans. We all had our own way of doing things. And yet we still had to get this whole thing running and, and be you know, good soldiers and still get through basic training and then some. So yeah, it's all about leadership. It's definitely the accelerated path to maturity, right? Mm. You have to forget all of that and just focus on the unit. Mm-hmm. So you've written two memoirs. One was about your experience in the IDF, and then one was about your decision to move back to America. Um, So tell me a little bit about how you decided to even write these memoirs, and then take me through your process, your writing process, and and sort of your vision for the stories. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. Anybody in Israel who serves in the IDF does not write a memoir about serving in the IDF. (laughs) It is not noteworthy, yeah. but when you are far, far away from the country, when you are far, far away from a memory, that distance of so many years is just a gift. The, the second memoir about leaving Israel and coming to America is a story that I continue to live today. Yeah. And yet somebody like me who, who feels things deeply on, on an emotional level and and felt called to write from that very lonely, lonely, lonely space, mm-hmm. decided that this would be a good thing for healing, not to sell a bestseller, not to make a million bucks, but to really, you know, optimize the, the time for healing and say, you know, if I go back, then I go back. But what can I do right now to help myself feel better about this story that I continue to live? Yeah. So I have a few questions about that. So, I mean, have you always liked to write? Is that something that you just sort of always did on the side or did it come after all of this? (laughs) Um, It's a great question. I, hmm, I have to say, I liked to write if it came naturally to me about things that I really felt emotionally connected to Yeah, and things that would take more effort. You know, I feel things very deeply with my heart. That's why when I do speaking engagements and presentations, people are like, oh my God, you touched me. And I'm like, yeah, because I feel things. And that's kind of like what I like to mimic in the writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. To answer your question, I liked writing, but I, I found that it became sometimes a burden when the words and the thoughts wouldn't come. And then I had to slow down and pace myself. But memoir is a, a wonderful um, genre that I didn't discover until later in, in our time during the States. And then I said, oh, hmm, 
maybe this is something that speaks to me because the, the marriage of the IDF story, the vulnerability, the courage, and the whole personal eye journey really was like a, an explosion. Yeah. It, um, I, I remember shopping for an agent in New York City and they were like, I like the story, but can you fictionalize it? A lived experience like this needs to be written like a memoir. I don't think I'm going to fictionalize it. <laughs> so I was going to ask what your goals were with the books. Like, were you hoping to sort of put out this universal truth to like resonate with other expat Israelis or to shed some light for Americans on these experiences? Like, what were your goals with the books? When I wrote the the first book, I was incredibly nervous because I knew that I went through something special and unique, and I didn't know how it would land on people. So the the goal there was just to kind of like tell a story that would resonate with people, mm-hmm. right? So it was, yeah. it was to write to people who are, let's say, serving now. It, it was for Israelis. It was for lone soldiers, but it was also for Americans. And yeah. I started to realize as I was speaking and writing that there's a whole mosaic of audiences here. And in Sand and Steel, it's it's a little bit more universal. It's really about finding homes. So I guess in our pandemic age, everybody who's in that space can identify. Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. So I know that you don't want to get political, so I'll try not to make it too political. But I did tell you before the interview that I have four kids and we get into a lot of political debates. And so the one question I do want to ask you, um, I don't know if you have any insights because I've been dying to ask Israelis this. Um, I feel like Israel is just the most misunderstood country in the world. I'm just so perplexed by that because I've been there bunch of times and I see, I see all the complexity in it, but I see a lot of good. And, um, and it just, it really confuses me why this misconception persists. I don't know if you have any perspective, having grown up in America, moved to Israel, then come back. Like, do you have any sort of bird's eye view as to like, what's going on here? Why is there such an inconsistency in the perception of Israel? Without getting too political, but I, I guess it has some political undertones to it because I've never written the memoirs or stories to, to strike a political chord. But I will say that when the Israeli attacks happened this earlier this year, yeah, um, what happened on our street in the age of anti-Semitism, unfortunately, is that America, with all its greatness, enjoys putting Israel as a scapegoat. It's easier. It's much harder to make the attempt to understand Israel. Had they known a little bit more, I I think we've made it so convenient now with social media that we don't need to live to understand. We need to live to attack. Mm. And that is very hurtful because we're raising generations that are perpetuating ideologies that aren't true. When I was in Israel, Half of what I see here is not happening there. Yeah. Talking about, we said earlier, you know, nation, people, religion, which are different identities, but they're all interwoven in Israel. And but you just said something about how in this age of anti-Semitism, which of course is always an age of anti-Semitism, but um, but I do see anti-Zionism as a form of anti-Semitism. And that's really hard to understand because, like you said, you never went into a synagogue there but it's a Jewish nation, but like these interweaving identities, it's, it's so complex and it's teeny. And I'm like, leave them alone. They're bigger places to, you know, to attack. But anyway, um, we'll talk about happier things and, and focus on you and your talent. Um, 
So I do want to ask you to, to share a little bit with our listeners. I know that Sand and Steel is really about that decision to leave Israel and then leaving. And how how did you reconcile that, especially after making the decision at such a young age to move there and then ultimately deciding for very good reasons that you needed to leave? Um, but how did that feel? And and what was that experience of, of coming here and building a new life again? It hurts to leave Israel because of economic hardship. It hurts to say goodbye to a country when your heart wants to be there. And Israel is the heart home for me. And so the decision has always been wrestled with economics and love. And it's very hard to wrestle love and money, you know, and people who I remember when I was still living there and hadn't made the executive decision to leave, I said, you have to be able to love this country with all of its, as they say in Hebrew, ichs, <laughs> you know, which translates to ich. And I know people who are in that space, and yet they still predominantly identify with Israel and the love for it. And so they 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 accept that. But unfortunately, I'm not seeing that change yet. So, you know, I, I guess I'd love to finish by asking if you have any advice for our listeners, um, you know, about this show is about finding your purpose, um, doing meaningful work, um, telling great stories. And so I wonder, you know, from your experiences, you're, you've, you've had so many great experiences. You've been in so many places, you've written these incredible books. Um, what, what lessons or advice would you leave our listeners with? Even if you think that you don't have anything worth writing and you're not like somebody like me, who's lived on several continents, it's still noteworthy showing up and putting your voice on paper and writing your story. You just don't know who you are going to touch at any given moment. And the reason why people's dreams get held back is because they're overthinking the process. They're, they want to be in perfection paralysis. They want to wait for the right moment, the right time. There is no right time. The pandemic has taught us that. And even before. And for me, the IDF taught me that when I pulled back, look, I, I wouldn't have gotten this far and people wouldn't have resonated with my story if I didn't put myself out there. And I, and I think the alternative to not putting yourself out there is living with a decision. Can you live with that? Can you live with that as a consequence? And life is life, right? We all have responsibilities, but to show up um, and, and to just um, not overthink something you just don't know if that story will touch somebody and it may not touch the whole world and it may not need to, it may be enough to reach the people that it needs to reach and to just not, not try to think in terms of monetizing, but to think in terms of giving yourself the permission to write about it. And I think this is something I'm learning all the time, all day, give yourself the permission to write about it with your belly hanging loose Right. And just write, you know, gobbledy gup. And even if it's horrible, at least you gave yourself the permission. And would you be able to live with that better or would you live with not even showing up? And I think these are two very, very different scenarios. One is Ugh, and one is, yes, I gave it a shot, you know, and, and to just remove yourself from outcome, remove yourself from trying to figure out how this fits into a goal. How can I monetize it? How can I make millions? How can I get an agent? All of that happens when it ha needs to happen, but the gift in showing up is its own gift. Awesome. I love that. So we will include in the show notes, um, all kinds of links to find you and your books. Can you tell our listeners really quickly, um, an easy way to get uh, a hold of copies if they want to read it? 
you want to get to know me a little bit more, obviously you can hop on my website, DoreetSassen.com, learn more about the two books and a little bit more about me. If you just want to get your hands on the books, you can go straight to Amazon right now. Um, special offer to anybody listening to Lynn's Fabulous Show is that if you are interested in learning more about Sand and Steel, just tell me a little bit more and I will send you Accidental Soldier for free if you hear Ooh. the podcast. So U.S. Um, listeners only because international shipping is its own mess. Yes, it totally is. So go to your website and mention that they heard you on the Make Meaning right. podcast and right. they'll get the two for one, which is so right. cool. Two for one. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Dorit Sasson, thank you so much for being a guest on the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you so much, Lynn, for all the good work that you're putting out in the world. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.